it is his needs that cause people to hurt him or abandon him. Typically, nice guys respond to these inaccurate interpretations of their life events by developing a number of survival mechanisms. Trying to appear needless and wantless. Making it difficult for others to give to them. Using covert contracts. Caretaking. Focusing attention on other people's needs. While creating an illusion of security in childhood, these survival mechanisms only increased the odds of their needs going unrecognized and unmet. Trying to appear needless and wantless prevents nice guys from getting their needs met. For nice guys, trying to become needless and wantless was a primary way of trying to cope with their childhood abandonment experiences. Since it was when they had the most needs that they felt the most abandoned, they believed it was their needs that drove people away. These helpless little boys concluded that if they could eliminate or hide all of their needs, then no one would abandon them. They also convinced themselves that if they didn't have needs, it wouldn't hurt so bad when the needs weren't met. Not only did they learn early not to expect to get their needs met, but also that their very survival seemed to depend on appearing not to have needs. This created an unsolvable bind. These helpless little boys could not totally repress their needs and stay alive, and they could not meet their needs on their own. The only logical solution was to try to appear to be needless and wantless while trying to get their needs met in indirect and covert ways. As a result of these childhood survival mechanisms, nice guys often believe it is a virtue to have few needs or wants. Beneath this facade of needlessness and wantlessness, all nice guys are actually extremely needy. Consequently, when they go about trying to get their needs met, nice guys are frequently indirect, unclear, manipulative, and controlling. Making it difficult for others to give to them prevents nice guys from getting their needs met. In addition to using ineffective strategies to get their needs met, nice guys are terrible receivers. Since getting their needs met contradicts their childhood paradigms, nice guys are extremely uncomfortable when they actually do get what they want. Though most nice guys have a difficult time grasping this concept, they are terrified of getting what they really want and will go to extreme measures to make sure they don't. Nice guys carry out this unconscious agenda by connecting with needy or unavailable people, operating from an unspoken agenda, being unclear and indirect, pushing people away, and sabotaging. A good illustration of this dynamic is the way nice guys commonly try to get their sexual needs met. Many of the nice guys I've worked with have expressed a heightened interest in sex, yet they frequently feel frustrated in their attempts to get these needs met. This is usually because their actions pretty much guarantee that they won't get what they believe they want. Nice guys have an uncanny knack of picking partners 
who, because of childhood sexual abuse or other negative experiences with sex, tend to have a difficult time being sexually expressive. When these partners do make themselves available to be sexual, it is not uncommon for nice guys to do something that further ensures that they don't get their needs met. The nice guy may respond by taking control rather than letting the sexual experience unfold. He may focus on his partner's sexual needs before she has a chance to pay attention to him. He might start a fight by making a comment about her weight or her past unavailability. All of these strategies pretty much ensure that the nice guy won't have to experience the fear, shame, or anxiety that might get triggered if he actually allowed someone to focus on his needs. Using covert contracts prevents nice guys from getting their needs met. All nice guys are faced with a dilemma. How can they keep the fact that they have needs hidden, but still create situations in which they have some hope of getting their needs met? In order to accomplish this seemingly impossible goal, nice guys utilize covert contracts. These unconscious, unspoken agreements are the primary way that nice guys interact with the world around them. Almost everything a nice guy does represents some manifestation of a covert contract. The nice guy's covert contract is simply this. I will do this, fill in the blank, for you. So that you will do this, fill in the blank, for me. We will both act as if we have no awareness of this contract. Most of us have had the experience of leaning over and whispering in our lover's ear, I love you. We then wait expectantly for our beloved to respond with, I love you too. This is an example of a covert contract in which a person gives to get. Saying, I love you, to hear, I love you too, in return, is the basic way nice guys go about trying to get all of their needs met. There's nothing wrong with asking your partner to tell you she loves you, but saying I love you first to get an I love you too in return is indirect, unclear, and manipulative. As a result of the conditioning they received in their family and society, nice guys believe if they are good, then they should be loved, get their needs met, and have a problem-free life. In reality, the primary paradigm of the nice guy syndrome is nothing more than a big covert contract with life. Breaking Free Activity Number 12 Ask yourself if you believe it is okay to have needs. Do you believe people want to help you meet your needs? Do you believe this world is a place of abundance? Caretaking prevents nice guys from getting their needs met. One of the most common ways nice guys use covert contracts to try to meet their needs is through caretaking. Nice guys believe their caretaking is fundamentally loving and is one of the things that makes them good people. In reality, caretaking has nothing to do with being loving or good. 
Caretaking is an immature and indirect attempt to try to get one's needs met. Caretaking always consists of two parts. Caretaking always consists of two parts. Focusing on another's problems, needs, or feelings in order to feel valuable, get one's own needs met, or to avoid dealing with one's own problems or feelings. Reese, a graphic designer in his late 20s, is a good example of the extremes to which nice guys caretake in their intimate relationships. Reese, who is gay, lamented in one of his therapy sessions, Why can't I find a partner who gives as much back to me as I give to him? He went on to describe how all of his boyfriends seemed to be takers and that he always did all of the giving. Within a period of a year, Reese entered into three intense relationships. Each began wonderfully and seemed like the partnership he had been looking for. Each failed because of the same scenario. Reese picked men who needed rescuing or fixing. The first boyfriend lived in Canada and had recently gotten off drugs. He came to live with Reese, but he never applied for a work visa and struggled to stay clean. Reese went out of his way to be supportive of his boyfriend with the hope that he would find a job and stay off drugs. Finally, Reese sent him home to get his life straightened out. Later, he found out from a mutual friend that the reason his boyfriend had never applied for a work visa was because he was HIV positive, something he failed to tell Reese. The next boyfriend was of a different race from Reese and had never come to grips with his homosexuality. His parents and religion kept him in constant conflict. He was never able to commit to the relationship. Nevertheless, Reese went out of his way to be supportive and giving, all with the hopes that his boyfriend would eventually get things straightened out and become available to Reese. The third boyfriend was in the military. He was living on base some 40 miles from Reese's apartment and had no car. Reese had to take the initiative in getting together and would often shuttle his partner around. Because Reese made more money, he always paid when they went out. Reese frequently bought his boyfriend gifts and loaned him money. When this boyfriend got transferred to a different state, Reese quit his job, sold his car, and moved along with him only to return in three months because his partner started running around on him. During this 12-month period, while Reese was so busy caretaking the needs and problems of his boyfriends, he gave up his job and alienated most of his friends and family. Reese's caretaking allowed him to stay oblivious to his own self-destructive behaviors while investing tremendous energy in trying to fix others. As is true for most nice guys, no matter how much he gave to others, Reese never felt like he got as much back in return. Breaking Free Activity Number 13 Identify at least one covert contract between you and a significant other. What do you give? What do you expect in return? Share this information with the other person. Ask the person how it feels to respond to an unclear agenda. Caring 
versus caretaking. Though nice guys see everything they do for others as loving, caretaking has very little to do with caring. Here are the differences. Caretaking. 1. Gives to others what the giver needs to give. 2. Comes from a place of emptiness within the giver. 3. Always has unconscious strings attached. Caring. 1. Gives to others what the receiver needs. 2. Comes from a place of abundance within the giver. 3. Has no strings attached. Nice guys caretake for a number of reasons, none of them having anything to do with love. For them, even the most innocuous and subtle act often has some string attached. Nice guys give in the ways that they would like others to give to them. They give gifts, affection, back rubs, sex, surprises. They will encourage their partner to take a day off, buy a new outfit, go to the doctor, take a trip, quit a job, go back to school, yet would not give themselves permission to do any of the same things. Breaking Free Activity number 14. Identify two or three examples of your caretaking behavior. In order to stimulate awareness of your caretaking, do one of the following for a period of one week. 1. Go on a caretaking moratorium. Because nice guys have a difficult time differentiating between caring and caretaking, stop giving completely except to young, dependent children. Tell people what you are doing so they won't be confused. Observe your feelings and other people's reactions. 2. Consciously try to caretake more than you already do. As odd as this assignment may sound, it is a very effective way to create awareness of your caretaking behavior. Pay attention to how you feel and how other people react to you. The Victim Triangle Rather than helping nice guys meet their needs, covert contracts and caretaking only lead to frustration and resentment. When this frustration and resentment builds long enough, it often spills out in some not-so-pretty ways. Giving to get creates a cycle of craziness called the victim triangle. The victim triangle consists of three predictable sequences. 1. The nice guy gives to others hoping to get something in return. 2. When it doesn't seem that he is getting as much as he gives or he isn't getting what he expected, he feels frustrated and resentful. Remember, the nice guy is the one keeping score and he isn't totally objective. 3. When this frustration and resentment builds up long enough, it spills out in the form of rage attacks, passive-aggressive behavior, pouting, tantrums, withdrawing, shaming, criticizing, blaming, even physical abuse. Once the cycle has been completed, it usually just begins all over again. My wife refers to these episodes as victim pukes. 
Sometimes the puking will resemble a child's temper tantrum. Sometimes the victim puke will take a more passive, aggressive form in which the nice guy will have an affair or act out in some hidden way. All the while, the person doing the puking will feel justified because of the many ways he has been victimized. These victim pukes are one of the primary reasons nice guys aren't always so nice. Shane's relationship with his girlfriend Raquel is a good example of the victim triangle and emotional puking. Shane had Raquel on a pedestal, but deep inside he believed she could only love him if he was good enough. In order to win her love, he gave her gifts, sent her cards, left phone messages, bought her clothes, planned special surprises, and helped her with her home and children. All of this created a sense of emotional indebtedness for Raquel. She felt like she could never repay Shane for everything he did for her. The truth was, she couldn't. Shane was trying to buy her love, only the contract wasn't clear. In time, the only way she could cope with his pleasing and caretaking was by pushing him away. When this happened, Shane was devastated. He couldn't understand why, if he had fulfilled his end of the contract, Raquel wouldn't keep hers. He didn't think he was that hard to please. The more Shane gave to Raquel, the more resentful he became. He would accuse her of not loving him. They would have tremendous battles in which they would break up, calling each other all kinds of names. Afterward, Shane would feel frightened and remorseful and pursue Raquel and try to fix things, all the while resenting her for not pursuing him and trying to fix things. He would then start caretaking and pleasing to win her love. The cycle repeated itself over and over again. Breaking Free, Activity Number 15 It can be difficult to make a direct link between your caretaking behavior and the victim pukes which inevitably follow. Observe the ways you hurt the people you love. Do you make cutting remarks or hurtful jokes? Do you embarrass them in public? Are you frequently late? Do you forget things they've asked you to do? Do you criticize them? Do you withdraw from them or threaten to leave? Do you let frustration build until you blow up at them? Ask the significant others in your life to give you feedback about your caretaking and victim pukes. This information may be hard to hear and may trigger a shame attack, but it is important information for breaking out of the victim triangle. Becoming Truly Selfish When I began writing this book, I shared the early drafts with members of my No More Mr. Nice Guy men's groups. On one occasion, a group member stated, It seems like the whole emphasis of the book is about focusing on oneself. It seems really selfish and self-centered, like the nice guy should just think about himself and not worry about anyone else. Even though I did not set out to write No More Mr. Nice Guy with this theme in mind, this group member's comments contained an important truth that I hadn't been fully conscious of before. 
Since the nice guys learned to sacrifice themselves in order to survive, recovery must center on learning to put themselves first and making their needs a priority. Most nice guys are astonished when I tell them that it is healthy to have needs and that mature people make getting their needs met a priority. Sometimes I have to repeat this truth many times in order for it to sink in. For nice guys, having needs means being needy. And needy represents a one-way ticket to abandonment. I tell nice guys, no one was put on this planet to meet your needs, except their parents and their job is done. I also remind them that they weren't put on this planet to meet anyone else's needs, except those of their children. This paradigm shift is always terrifying for recovering nice guys. The idea of making their needs a priority feels like the quickest route to being disliked, unloved, and all alone. Whenever I challenge nice guys to focus on making their needs a priority, their responses are pretty predictable. People will get angry at me. People will think I'm selfish. I'll be all alone. What if everyone lived this way? I then list the benefits for nice guys and the people around them when they begin to put themselves first. They increase the likelihood of getting what they need and want. They can give judiciously, giving what people really need. They can give without resentment and expectation. They become less needy. They become more attractive. Most nice guys will really like the last benefit on the list. Helpless, whiny, wimpy, and needy are not attractive on a man. Confidence and self-assurance are attractive. Most folks are attracted to men who have a sense of self. Putting the self first doesn't drive people away. It attracts them. Putting the self first is essential for getting what one wants in love and life. Taking responsibility for their own needs helps nice guys get their needs met. They must begin to shift their core paradigms. This shift includes coming to believe, having needs is part of being human, mature people make meeting their own needs a priority. They can ask for help in meeting their needs in clear and direct ways. Other people really do want to help them meet their needs. This world is a place of abundance. In order to get their needs met, recovering nice guys must do something radically different from what they have done previously. For nice guys, putting the self first is not just a suggestion to try on for size. It is essential not only for getting needs met, but also for reclaiming personal power, feeling fully alive, and experiencing love and intimacy. Interestingly enough, when nice guys take responsibility for their own needs and make them a priority, those around them benefit too. Gone are the covert contracts, the guessing games, the anger outbursts, and passive-aggressive behavior. Gone are the manipulation, the controlling behavior, and the resentment. I learned this lesson firsthand a few years back. A holiday weekend was approaching, and our kids were going to be out of town. I tried to plan some time with my wife, Elizabeth, 
but she seemed ambivalent and unwilling to make a commitment to what she wanted to do. I felt frustrated and put my plans on hold. Finally, upon the urging of a friend, I decided to try putting myself first over the weekend. I made plans and invited my wife to join me if she felt inclined. I did several things I wanted to do, including spending some time with friends. As it turned out, Elizabeth decided to join me on a number of occasions. On Monday, she shared with me that she had thoroughly enjoyed the weekend and didn't want it to end. A Challenge In a session of one of my No More Mr. Nice Guy men's groups, I challenged each of the members to experiment with putting themselves first for at least a week. Though the challenge created tremendous anxiety for all of the men, each decided to accept it. The experiences of Lars, Reese, and Shane are presented below. Lars Lars, introduced at the beginning of the chapter, went home after the group and told his wife that he was going to make his needs a priority for the following week. She was initially resistant to his proclamation, which added to his anxiety. To boost his courage, Lars called a couple of men in the group. Their encouragement gave him the support he needed to follow through with his commitment. Lars decided to keep it simple. His plan for the week involved making time every day to go to the gym and work out. Before his children were born, Lars had been physically active. The demands of job, home, and children had put an end to that. Lars decided to alternate his workouts before and after work. When he shared his plan with his wife, she applied a little guilt. That's not fair that you get to work out and I don't, she proclaimed. Lars was tempted to back down. He had an impulse to try to find a solution so his wife could work out too. Instead, he reflected on her concern and told her he was going to work out anyway. During his first couple of trips to the gym, Lars was overwhelmed with guilt and anxiety. Nevertheless, he persevered. After the third day, his wife actually asked him how his workout went. As the week continued, Lars began to feel more energized and optimistic about life. He started sleeping better. At the gym, he enjoyed being around other people who were also taking good care of themselves. Surprisingly, after his first week, his wife told him that he had inspired her to start taking better care of herself. She told him that she was going to start dropping the kids off at the daycare center at the gym and begin an aerobics class for herself. Reese Reese had joined the No More Mr. Nice Guy group after his breakup with his last boyfriend. At first, he had been uncomfortable being the only gay man in the group, but the other men accepted him, and he had begun to work on developing non-sexual relationships with men. Reese's habit on weekends was to go out with his latest boyfriend to gay bars on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday nights. By Monday morning, he was exhausted. He would spend the rest of the week playing catch-up. Reese was afraid that if he didn't go out whenever his boyfriend wanted, his boyfriend would leave him. Reese decided that for one weekend, he would put himself first and do what felt right to him. He told his boyfriend in advance. Reese decided that he would go out just one night, not drink, and be in by midnight. On Saturday, he made some plans to go to a movie with a couple of guys in the group. On Sunday, he stayed at home to relax and get caught up on some house cleaning and laundry. His goal was to be in bed by 10 p.m. on Sunday evening. When Monday came, Reese felt rested and clear-headed at work. 
His boyfriend hadn't dropped him, and the rest of the week felt productive and enjoyable. Shane Shane, also introduced earlier in the chapter, liked to do things for his girlfriend. Shane regularly gave her gifts, planned surprises, and did whatever he could to help her out. Shane's plan for putting himself first involved paying attention to when he had an impulse to do something for his girlfriend. Whenever he felt this impulse, he would instead do something for himself. When he thought about washing her car, he washed his own instead. When he felt the urge to buy her a gift, he bought himself something instead. When he thought about calling her just to see if she was okay, he called a group member instead. All of this created tremendous anxiety for Shane. Much to his surprise, at the end of the week, Raquel reported she felt a lot less smothered by Shane and actually looked forward to spending time with him. She even called late one evening after the kids were in bed and invited him over to make love. A couple of weeks later, Shane and Raquel talked about the change in a couple's counseling session. They decided to continue the process. For a period of six months, they agreed that Shane would not give any gifts or plan any surprises for Raquel. During the following six months, he refrained from giving her birthday, Christmas, and Valentine's cards or gifts. During this time, he focused on taking better care of himself and getting his needs met. In time, Shane came to see that not only did Raquel not stop loving him, she actually became more giving to Shane. One year later, they both reported that Shane could give a gift without using it as a way to get approval or affirmation. During this time, Shane had also learned that making his needs a priority made him less dependent, needy, and fearful. Both Shane and Raquel reported enjoying all the changes they had experienced since Shane made the decision to start putting himself first. Making the Decision Nice guys have believed a myth that promises them that if they give up themselves and put others first, they will be loved and get their needs met. There is only one way to change this illogical, non-productive, nice guy paradigm to put themselves first. Making the decision to put oneself first is the hardest part. Actually doing it is relatively easy. When the nice guy puts himself first, there's only one voice to consider, his own. Decisions are now made by one individual rather than by a committee. He no longer has to mind read, predict, or try to please multiple voices with conflicting agendas. When putting himself first, all the information he needs to make a decision is within him. Is this what I want? Yes. Then that's what I'll do. Breaking free from the nice guy syndrome involves taking responsibility for one's own needs. Others may cooperate with the nice guy, but they are not in charge of meeting his needs. By making their needs a priority and putting themselves first, recovering nice guys can come to see the world as a place of abundance. They can truly come to believe that their needs are important, and there are people out there who are happy and willing to help them meet them. Breaking Free Activity Number 16 Make a decision to put yourself first for a weekend or even a whole week. Tell the people around you what you are doing. 
Ask a friend to support you and encourage you in this process. Pay attention to your initial anxiety. Pay attention to your tendency to revert to old patterns. At the end of the time period, ask the people around you what it was like for them when you put yourself first. Remember, you don't have to do it perfectly. Just do it. Chapter 5 Reclaim Your Personal Power One Saturday morning, a few years back, my wife Elizabeth and I were engaged in a heated discussion over something I had done. Like many of our arguments, Elizabeth felt helpless to get me to see my denial. At the same time, I felt unjustly persecuted. Finally, when the argument reached an emotional crescendo, Elizabeth shouted in frustration, You're nothing but a wimp! Elizabeth left the room, and I retreated to the bathroom to dry my eyes. After a few minutes of reflection, Elizabeth knocked on the bathroom door. I assumed she was coming back to take another stab at her wounded prey. Instead, she apologized. I'm sorry for calling you a wimp. That wasn't fair. Actually, I responded, wiping a tear away, it was the most accurate thing you said all morning. Nice guys are wimps. This may not sound like a nice thing to say, but it's true. Nice guys tend to be wimpy victims because their life paradigm and childhood survival mechanisms require them to sacrifice their personal power. As stated in previous chapters, a common denominator for nice guys is that they did not get their needs met in a timely, healthy fashion in childhood. These little boys were helpless to prevent people from abandoning them, neglecting them, abusing them, using them, or smothering them. They were victims to the people who failed to love them, pay attention to them, meet their needs, and protect them. As a result of these childhood experiences, feeling like a victim feels familiar for most nice guys. These men tend to see others as causing the problems they are experiencing in life. As a consequence, they often feel frustrated, helpless, resentful, and rageful. You can see it in their body language. You can hear it in their voices. It's not fair. How come she gets to make the rules? I always give more than I get. If she would just... A Paradigm of Powerlessness in an attempt to cope with their childhood abandonment experiences, all nice guys developed the same paradigm. If I am good, then I will be loved, get my needs met, and have a problem-free life. Unfortunately, this paradigm not only produces the opposite of what is desired, it guarantees nothing but feelings of perpetual powerlessness. Even though nice guys are obsessed with trying to create a smooth, problem-free life, Two major factors prevent them from attaining this goal. The first is that they are attempting the impossible. Life is not smooth. Human existence is by nature chaotic. Life is filled with experiences that are unpredictable and beyond anyone's control. Therefore, trying to create a predictable life in which everything always goes as planned is an exercise in futility. In spite of the fact that we live in a chaotic, unpredictable world, Nice guys are not only convinced that life can be smooth, they believe it should be. This belief is the direct result of their childhood abandonment experiences. 
The unpredictability of not having their needs met in a timely, judicious fashion was not only frightening, it was potentially life-threatening. In an attempt to cope with the uncertainty of their chaotic childhoods, nice guys developed a belief system that if they could just do everything right, then everything would go right in their lives. Sometimes these men also developed belief systems that their childhood was ideal and problem-free, the opposite of reality, in order to cope with their abandonment experiences. These were all distorted beliefs, but these illusions helped these helpless little boys deal with the turmoil that was out of their control. A second reason nice guys never accomplish their goal of having a smooth life is that they do the opposite of what works. By approaching adult situations with survival mechanisms that were formed when they were naive and powerless, they are assured of having very little success in creating anything that resembles stability in their lives. The dependence on these ineffective survival mechanisms keeps nice guys trapped in the memory of their fearful childhood experiences and perpetuates a vicious cycle. The more frightened they are, the more they use their childhood survival mechanisms. The more they use their ineffective mechanisms, the less successful they are in negotiating the complexities, challenges, and ambiguities of life. The less successful they are, the more fearful they become. You get the picture. Overcoming the Wimp Factor Reclaiming Personal Power I define personal power as a state of mind in which a person is confident he can handle whatever may come. This kind of power not only successfully deals with problems, challenges, and adversity, it actually welcomes them, meets them head-on, and is thankful for them. Personal power isn't the absence of fear. Even the most powerful people have fear. Personal power is the result of feeling fear, but not giving in to the fear. There is a solution to the helplessness and vulnerability nice guys feel. Recovery from the nice guy syndrome allows nice guys to embrace the personal power that is their birthright. Reclaiming personal power includes surrendering, dwelling in reality, expressing feelings, facing fears, developing integrity, setting boundaries. Breaking Free, Activity Number 17 Look over the following list of ways nice guys try to create a smooth, problem-free life. Write down an example of how you used each coping mechanism in childhood. Then, next to each, give an example of how you use this strategy to control your world in adulthood. Note how each of these behaviors keep you feeling like a powerless victim. Share this information with a safe person. Doing it right. Playing it safe. Anticipating and fixing. Trying not to rock the boat. Being charming and helpful. Never being a moment's problem. Using covert contracts. Controlling and manipulating. Caretaking and pleasing. Withholding information. Repressing feelings. Making sure other people don't have feelings. Avoiding problems and difficult situations. Surrendering helps nice guys reclaim their personal power. Ironically, the most important aspect of reclaiming personal power and getting what one wants in love and life is surrender. Surrender doesn't mean giving up. 
it means letting go of what one can't change and changing what one can. Letting go doesn't mean not caring or not trying. Letting go means letting be. It is like opening up a tightly clenched fist and releasing the tension stored inside. At first, the fingers will want to return to their former clenched position. The hand almost always has to be retrained to open up and relax. So it is with learning how to surrender and let go. Surrender allows recovering nice guys to let go and respond to life's complex beauty rather than trying to control it. Surrender allows these men to see life as a laboratory for learning, growth, and creativity. Surrender allows recovering nice guys to see each life experience as a gift from the universe to stimulate growth, healing, and learning. Instead of asking, why is this happening to me? The recovering nice guy can respond to life's challenges by pondering, what do I need to learn from this situation? Gill exemplifies the process of letting go. Gill had reached a crisis point in his relationship with his girlfriend, Barb. Gill had originally begun couples counseling with Barb to fix her problem. He claimed that she was depressed, angry all the time, and had no interest in sex. He reported that he constantly walked on eggshells, trying to make sure he never did anything to upset her. Gill and Barb were both in their early 50s and had been living together for eight years. They had discussed marriage, but both felt apprehension due to the unsettled nature of their relationship. After a couple months of couples counseling, Gill began to entertain the idea that all the problems in the relationship might not be about Barb. He began looking at his own caretaking and controlling behavior. He also became aware that he had few outside interests and no male friends. After a couple more months, he joined a No More Mr. Nice Guy men's group. Even as Gill began to look at his own problems and ineffective life patterns, he kept seeking the key for making Barb better. It was a slow process, but Gill began to see that he could not do anything to change Barb and that he was going to have to focus on himself. As he began to let go and detach from Barb, he felt tremendous anxiety. He had a deep fear that he was going to get in trouble. He also believed that Barb couldn't handle her problems without his help. With the support of the group, Gill surrendered. He came to realize that he would be okay regardless of whether he and Barb made it as a couple. Much to his surprise, their relationship began to improve. As he let go of trying to solve her problems and detached from her moods, Gil found that he had fewer frustrations and resentments. He even began to see Barb as a gift to help him work through his issues with his angry father. A year later, he announced to his men's group that he and Barb had set a date to get married. He reported that they were getting along better than he would have ever imagined. He shared that the turning point seemed to be when he made the decision that he didn't care whether they made it together or not. That decision represented a conscious letting go of trying to control something that was clearly not in his control.
Ironically, he shared that the process of letting go allowed him to receive what he really wanted. Breaking Free Activity Number 18 Think about one gift from the universe that you initially resisted but can now see as a positive stimulus for growth or discovery. Are there any similar gifts in your life right now to which you need to surrender? Share this information with a safe person. Dwelling in reality helps nice guys reclaim their personal power. Nice guys try to control their world by creating belief systems about people and situations that are not based in reality. They then act as if these beliefs are accurate. This is why their behavior often seems illogical to outside observers. Les, an unassuming man in his late thirties, had a brief affair with a co-worker. During his initial therapy session, I asked Les why he thought he had an affair. I don't know, he replied. I guess I just wanted some attention. I continued by asking him how he expressed his anger towards his wife. With a puzzled look, he responded, I never get angry at Sarah. You mean you two have been married for ten years and she's never done anything to piss you off? I asked in mock surprise. To listen to Les talk about his wife, it was evident he had her on a pedestal. It was equally clear that he was not dwelling in reality when it came to his marriage. When I asked specific questions about his wife, Les revealed how Sarah had gained 60 pounds since they married, refused to cook, was depressed, no longer wanted to have sex with him, treated him with contempt, and would rage at him without provocation. In spite of all of these things, Les maintained that his wife was the woman of his dreams and that he loved her dearly. Throughout the next few months of therapy, I consistently held up a mirror of reality to Les in regard to his wife and his relationship with her. This was a slow and difficult process. Les needed to see Sarah in a certain way because of his fear of being alone. To dwell in reality might mean he would have to do something frightening or difficult. As Les began to face his fears of abandonment, he also began to see his wife more accurately. This change allowed him to start asking for what he wanted, set boundaries, and express his feelings of resentment and anger. It soon became apparent that Sarah had no desire to look at her role in the relationship or make any kind of changes. Though it was painful and frightening, accepting things as they really were allowed Les to make the decision to move out and file for divorce. Dwelling in reality allowed Les to look at why he had created the kind of system he had with Sarah. It put him in a position to make difficult but realistic decisions. It allowed him to access the inner power he needed to make significant changes in his life. It also opened the door for him to find someone who was available to help him create the kind of relationship he wanted. Breaking Free Activity number 19. Pick one area in your life in which you routinely feel frustrated or out of control. Step back from the situation. Is the difficulty you are having with the situation 
the result of you trying to project the reality you want to believe onto it? If you had to accept the reality of this situation, how might you change your response to it? Expressing feelings helps nice guys reclaim their personal power. Nice guys are terrified of two kinds of feelings, their own and everyone else's. Any kind of intensity causes nice guys to feel out of control. As children, feeling things intensely invited either negative attention or no attention at all. Therefore, it came to feel safer to clamp a lid down tightly on any emotion that might attract too much negative attention or might cause them to feel abandoned. I remember early in our marriage when Elizabeth would express her frustration over my inability to share what I was feeling. Like most nice guys, I had come to see feelings as a dangerous thing. After more than 30 years of conditioning, I had no clue what Elizabeth wanted from me. Even as I began to become aware of my feelings, I often kept them to myself. It is almost comical how infrequently it crosses a nice guy's mind to tell his partner what he is feeling. On one occasion, Elizabeth confronted me when I had shared a feeling with her that I had been harboring for some time. Why didn't you tell me about that when you first felt it? she questioned. I'm doing better, I replied in typical nice guy fashion. It only took me two weeks to get around to telling you. I frequently hear nice guys rationalize the withholding of their feelings by claiming they don't want to hurt anyone. The truth is, they are covering their own butts. What they are really saying is that they don't want to do anything that might recreate their childhood experiences. They're really not trying to protect anyone from harm. They're just trying to keep their world smooth and under control. I frequently tell nice guys, your feelings are just feelings. They won't kill you. Regardless of whether a nice guy is feeling anxious, helpless, shameful, lonely, rageful, or sad, his feelings aren't life-threatening. The goal of teaching nice guys to embrace their feelings is not to make them soft and touchy-feely. Men who are in touch with their feelings are powerful, assertive, and energized. Contrary to what many nice guys believe, they don't have to become more like women in order to have their feelings. This is why I support men in learning about their feelings from other men. While there is no formula or right way to get reconnected with repressed feelings, support groups can teach, model, and support this slow, but important process. In a sense, a therapy group can become like a family. In this environment, recovering nice guys can ask for the kind of help in dealing with feelings that was never available to them as children. Since feelings are often messy, a group environment can represent a supportive place to momentarily feel out of control. Here, Recovering nice guys find out they won't fall overboard and drown if they rock the boat. They also learn that they won't shrivel up and die if someone else around them has a feeling. Feelings are an integral part of human experience. By learning the language of feelings, recovering nice guys can begin to let go of a lifetime of unnecessary baggage. As they do, they experience a newfound energy, optimism, 
intimacy, and zest for life. This reality hit home with me a few years ago in a very unexpected way. Elizabeth came to me one day and revealed that she had backed into a parked car. She felt like a bad little child and waited for me to scold her. Even before I had a chance to respond, she began to put up a wall and withdraw as a way of protecting herself. I got angry, not about the car, but about the manner in which she was pushing me away. I expressed my feelings clearly and directly. Without shaming or attacking, I said, Stop. With an intensity of emotion that surprised both of us, I let her know that I wasn't pushing her away and I wasn't going to accept her pushing me away. I told her that I did have feelings about the car, but I had even stronger feelings about how she was acting. I said, Just let me have my feelings about the car, and then we'll work it out. Later, Elizabeth revealed to me and several of her friends how much safer she felt when I had my feelings. She was able to hear that I was upset about the car, but I didn't think she was bad, and I wasn't going to abandon her. The fact that I had such intensity about not letting her push me away actually made her feel secure and loved. As a result, she felt safe to stay connected to me and hear my feelings about the car. The whole incident brought us closer and has since provided a reference point for the healing power of expressing emotions in powerful and direct ways. Breaking Free Activity Number 20 Some Guidelines About Expressing Feelings Don't focus on the other person. You are making me mad. Instead, take responsibility for what you are feeling. I am feeling angry. Don't use feeling words to describe what you are thinking, as in, I feel like Joe was trying to take advantage of me. Instead, pay attention to what you are experiencing in your body. I'm feeling helpless and frightened. In general, try to begin feeling statements with I rather than you. Try to avoid the crutch of saying, I feel like, as in, I feel like you are being mean to me. Facing fears helps nice guys reclaim their personal power. Fear is a normal part of human experience. Everyone experiences fear, even those people who seem fearless. Healthy fear is a warning sign that danger may be approaching. This is different from the fear nice guys experience on a daily basis. For nice guys, fear is recorded at the cellular level. It is a memory of every seemingly life-threatening experience they ever had. It was born of a time of absolute dependency and helplessness. It originated in not having their needs met in a timely, judicious manner. It was fostered by fearful systems that discouraged risk and rewarded conservatism. It was heightened by the reality that life is messy and chaotic and any kind of change promises a journey into the unknown. I call this kind of fear memory fear. Because of the memory fear created in childhood, nice guys still approach the world as if it is dangerous and overpowering. To cope with these realities, nice guys typically hunker down and play it safe. As a consequence of playing it safe, nice guys experience a lot of needless suffering. 
suffering because they avoid new situations, suffering because they stay with the familiar, suffering because they procrastinate, avoid, and fail to finish what they start, suffering because they make a bad situation worse by doing more of what has never worked in the past, suffering because they expend so much energy trying to control the uncontrollable. Nolan is a good example of the paralyzing effect of memory fear. Nolan came to see me on the recommendation of a friend. He had been separated from his wife for a year, but was having a difficult time making a final decision about getting divorced. Nolan frequently told me he was confused. This confusion was mixed with a strong dose of guilt. Nolan constantly weighed all the issues. What if he left his wife and later realized that it was a mistake? What if he messed up his kids' lives? What if his children never wanted to talk to him again? What if his friends thought he was bad? What if God sent him to hell? As long as Nolan stayed confused about what he should do, he remained paralyzed. When I told Nolan that I didn't think he was confused, but that he was afraid, he was initially defensive. He didn't like seeing himself as being fearful. As we explored the memory fear from his childhood, he came to realize that any mistakes he made as a child seemed to have everlasting consequences. He believed the same would be true in his present situation. Behind Nolan's fear of making a decision was a childhood fear that he wouldn't be able to handle whatever happened. Together we brainstormed all the possible consequences of divorcing his wife. Behind each potential consequence was the unconscious belief that he wouldn't be able to handle it. I sent Nolan home with his list of fears along with a more accurate statement about each. No matter what happened, he would handle it. The following week, Nolan proudly announced that he had contacted an attorney. Even though he felt tremendous fear and anxiety, he found courage in repeating his newfound mantra, I can handle it. Facing present-day fears is the only way to overcome memory fear. Every time the nice guy confronts a fear, he unconsciously creates a belief that he can handle whatever it is he is afraid of. This challenges his memory fear. Challenging this memory fear makes the things outside of him seem less threatening. As these things seem less frightening, he feels more confident in confronting them. The more this confidence grows, the less threatening life seems. Developing integrity helps nice guys reclaim their personal power. Most nice guys pride themselves on being honest and trustworthy. In reality, nice guys are fundamentally dishonest. They have the ability to tell a lie or withhold the truth and still believe the illusion that they are basically honest people. Since dishonesty is a fear-based behavior, telling lies and withholding the truth robs nice guys of their personal power. I define lying as anything less than the truth. This may seem evident to most people, but it is important to define lying and telling the truth because nice guys are adept at creating definitions that justify their behavior. It is not unusual to hear them make statements like, I'm pretty honest, or I'm honest most of the time, without the slightest awareness of their contradiction of terms. In an almost childlike manner, Nice guys will often offer the following defense. I didn't lie, 
I just didn't tell everything. Joel was the owner of a successful construction company. On occasion, he would leave work a little early and catch an afternoon movie before heading home. Because he feared his wife's disapproval, he would refrain from telling her how he spent those afternoons. He would always have some cover story ready in case she tried to call him while he was out. The irony of the situation is that there was absolutely no reason for Joel to lie to his wife. In spite of all the effort Joel put into hiding the truth of his whereabouts, it never crossed his mind that he was lying to himself and to his wife. The bottom line was that Joel's lying perpetuated a fear-based relationship with his wife and robbed him of his personal power. When nice guys are learning to tell the truth, I encourage them to pay attention to the things they least want others to know and what they least want to reveal. These are the things they are most likely to hold back and the things they most need to tell. Sometimes they have to practice telling a certain truth several times until all of these pieces of information get told. Sometimes, after telling the truth, nice guys will report that it was a mistake because someone reacted with anger. Telling the truth is not a magic formula for having a smooth life, but living a life of integrity is actually easier than living one built around deceit and distortion. Developing integrity is an essential part of recovery from the nice guy syndrome. My definition of integrity is about deciding what feels right and doing it. The alternative is using the committee approach. This method of decision-making and acting is based on trying to guess what everyone else would think is right. Following this committee approach is the quickest path to confusion, fear, powerlessness, and dishonesty. When applying the definition above, there are two ways to be out of integrity, but only one way to be in it. When a nice guy never even bothers to ask himself, what do I think is right, or uses the committee method, he will always be out of integrity. If he asks himself what he believes is right, but doesn't do it, he is also out of integrity. Only by asking himself what he believes is right, and then doing it, does he become a man of integrity. Breaking Free Activity Number 21 List one fear that has been controlling your life. Once you decide to confront the fear, begin repeating to yourself, I can handle it. No matter what happens, I will handle it. Keep repeating this mantra until you take action and stop feeling fear. Breaking Free Activity Number 22 Choose one area in which you have been out of integrity. Identify your fear that keeps you from telling the truth or doing the right thing. Reveal this situation to a safe person. Then go and tell the truth, or do what you have to do to make the situation right. Tell yourself you can handle it. Since telling the truth may create a crisis for you or others, have faith that everyone involved will survive this crisis. Setting boundaries helps nice guys reclaim their personal power. 
Boundaries are essential for survival. Learning to set boundaries allows nice guys to stop feeling like helpless victims and reclaim their personal power. Boundary setting is one of the most fundamental skills I teach to recovering nice guys. I demonstrate the concept of boundaries by laying a shoestring on the ground. I tell the nice guy that I'm going to cross his boundary and push him backwards. I instruct him to stop me when he begins to feel uncomfortable. It is not unusual for a nice guy to stand well back from the line, allowing me to violate his space several steps before he begins to respond. Once I start pushing, it's not uncommon for a nice guy to let me push him back several steps before he does anything to stop me. Sometimes a nice guy will let me push him all the way to the wall. I use this exercise as a graphic demonstration of the need for boundaries in all areas of life. Nice guys are usually more comfortable backpedaling, giving in, and keeping the peace. They believe if they take one more step backward, the other person will quit pushing and then everything will be smooth. It is not unusual for recovering nice guys to go a little overboard when they first learn about boundary setting. They have a tendency to swing from one extreme to another. They become kamikaze boundary setters. They try to set boundaries with a sledgehammer or machete. They usually learn in time that they only have to use as much resistance as necessary to get the job done. In time, they also learn that boundary setting isn't about getting other people to be different. It's about getting themselves to be different. If someone is crossing their boundary, it isn't the other person's problem. It is theirs. Because of memory fear, nice guys often unconsciously reinforce the very behaviors they find intolerable. Due to their childhood conditioning, they teach the people around them that they will accept having their boundaries violated. As recovering nice guys begin to take responsibility for how they let people treat them, their own behavior begins to change. As they stop reinforcing things they aren't willing to tolerate, the people around them are given the opportunity to behave differently. This gives relationships a chance to survive and grow. Jake, an enlisted man in his mid-twenties, is a good example of how tolerating intolerable behavior can kill a relationship and how setting boundaries can give a relationship a chance to survive. Just prior to his marriage to his wife, Keisha, Keisha had an affair with an old boyfriend. Because Jake didn't want to lose her, he forgave her and promised to never bring up her infidelity. This established a pattern of Keisha pretty much doing whatever she wanted while Jake withheld his feelings and walked on eggshells. He would always measure his words in order to avoid saying anything wrong that might upset her. On one occasion, while they were out drinking with some friends, Keisha got drunk. Whenever she had too much to drink, she would become belligerent and promiscuous. On this occasion, she made several demeaning remarks to Jake and spent most of the evening slow dancing with other men in the bar. After holding his tongue as long as he could, Jake finally told Keisha that she was drunk and that it was time to go home. She swore at him and kept on doing what she was doing. 
Jake retaliated by calling her a bitch and drove home. One of her friends brought Keisha home the next morning. For the rest of the day, she gave Jake the silent treatment. He tried to hold out, but after a few hours of misery, he apologized for calling her a bitch. Later that week, he somewhat reluctantly talked about the episode in his No More Mr. Nice Guy group. The group members lovingly confronted him. They pointed out how his willingness to tolerate his wife's intolerable behavior gave her license to act in any way she pleased. They told Jake that the problem was not Keisha. It was him. Until Jake changed, his wife would have no incentive to change. By not setting boundaries, he was robbing his marriage of the opportunity to become what it could be. Breaking Free Activity number 23 Before you can start setting boundaries, you have to become aware of how much you back up from your line to avoid conflict or to keep the peace. For the next week, observe yourself. Do you say yes when you would rather say no? Do you agree to do something to avoid conflict? Do you avoid doing something because someone might get upset at you? Do you tolerate an intolerable situation, hoping that it will just go away? Write these observations down and share them with a safe person. The next day, Jake confronted his wife. He acknowledged his role in their situation. He told her that he was no longer going to tolerate intolerable behavior. He told her his boundaries. He would no longer tolerate Keisha dancing or flirting with other men. He would not tolerate her demeaning him in front of their friends. He told her that if she wanted to stay married to him, she had to go to treatment for her drinking problem. Keisha responded by telling Jake that no one was going to tell her what to do. She packed a bag and moved out that night to a friend's house. Even though Jake was miserable the next few days, he resisted the temptation to call her and beg her to come back. Instead, he called some guys in the group. Three nights later, Keisha called and said she wanted to talk. She came over and told Jake that even though she initially wanted to tell him to go to hell, she knew he was right. For the first time in their marriage, she said she felt respect for him. She said she wanted to save their marriage and was willing to do whatever it took to make it work. The following week, Keisha entered treatment. Take a walk on the wild side. There is no key to a smooth life. Being good or doing it right doesn't insulate nice guys from the chaotic, ever-changing realities of life. All the nice guy paradigm does is create wimpy men who allow bullies to kick sand in their face or shame them for loading the dishwasher wrong. As recovering nice guys begin to surrender, dwell in reality, express their feelings, face their fears, develop integrity, and set boundaries, they access a power that allows them to welcome and embrace the challenges and gifts of life. Life isn't a merry-go-round, it's a roller coaster. As they reclaim personal power, recovering nice guys can experience the world in all of its serendipitous beauty. Life won't always be smooth, it may not always be pretty, but it will be an adventure, one not to be missed. Chapter 6 Reclaim Your Masculinity Contrary to the prevailing sentiments of the last few decades, it is okay to be a guy. 
Men born after World War II had the misfortune of growing up during the only era of recent Western history in which it was not always a good thing to be male. This was primarily the result of two significant family and social changes in the post-war era. Boys were disconnected from their fathers and other healthy male role models, and boys were forced to seek approval from women and accept a female definition of what it meant to be male. As a result of these two dynamics, many boys and men came to believe that they had to hide or eliminate any negative male traits, like those of their fathers or other bad men, and become what they believed women wanted them to be. For many men, this life strategy seemed essential if they wanted to be loved, get their needs met, and have a smooth life. Due to the continuing social change of the last half of the 20th century, this belief system was no longer limited to just men of the baby boom generation. I frequently observe men in their 30s, 20s, and teens with strong nice guy traits. It seems that each successive generation of men are becoming more and more passive. This social conditioning affects nice guys in many ways. Nice guys tend to be disconnected from other men. Nice guys tend to be disconnected from their own masculinity. Nice guys tend to be monogamous to their mothers. Nice guys tend to be dependent on the approval of women. Nice guys tend to be disconnected from other men. I frequently hear nice guys make comments such as, I'm just not comfortable with other men. I don't know what to talk about. Most men are jerks. I used to have male friends, but my wife made it such a hassle to do things with them that I just gave up. I tend to be a loner. Many nice guys have difficulty connecting with men because of the limited, positive male contact they experienced in childhood. Because these men did not have a positive bond with father, they never learned the basic skills necessary to build meaningful relationships with men. Another common trait among nice guys is the belief that they are different from other men. This distorted thinking usually began in childhood, when they tried to be different from their bad or unavailable father. In adulthood, nice guys often create a similar dynamic with men in general. Nice guys may convince themselves they are different from, better than, other men because they believe they aren't controlling, they aren't angry and rageful, they aren't violent, they are attentive to a woman's needs, they are good lovers, they are good fathers. As long as nice guys are disconnected from men or believe they are different from other men, they cut themselves off from the many positive benefits of male companionship and the power of a masculine community. Breaking Free Activity Number 24 Look over the list above. Note the ways you have consciously or unconsciously tried to be different from your father and or other men. How does the belief that you are different keep you disconnected from other men? Nice guys tend to be disconnected from their masculinity. I define masculinity as that part of a man that equips him to survive as an individual, clan, and species. 
Without this masculine energy, we would have all become extinct eons ago. Masculinity empowers a man to create and produce. It also empowers him to provide for and protect those who are important to him. These aspects of masculinity include strength, discipline, courage, passion, persistence, and integrity. Masculine energy also represents the potential for aggressiveness, destructiveness, and brutality. These characteristics frighten nice guys and most women. Therefore, nice guys work especially hard to repress these traits. Most nice guys believe that by repressing the darker side of their masculine energy, they will win the approval of women. This seems logical considering the anti-male climate that has permeated our culture since the 1960s. Ironically, these same men frequently complain that women seem to be attracted to jerks rather than nice guys like them. Many women have shared with me that due to the absence of any discernible life energy in nice guys, there is little to be attracted to. They also reveal that their tendency to be attracted to jerks is because these men have more of a masculine edge to them. As nice guys try to avoid the dark side of their masculinity, they also repress many other aspects of this male energy force. As a result, they often lose their sexual assertiveness, competitiveness, creativity, ego, thirst for experience, boisterousness, exhibitionism, and power. Go watch little boys on the playground, and you'll see these qualities. I'm convinced that these are good things worth keeping. One of the most visible consequences of the repression of masculine energy in nice guys is their lack of leadership in their families. Out of fear of upsetting their partner or appearing too much like their controlling, authoritarian, or abusive fathers, nice guys frequently fail to be the leader their family needs. Consequently, the job of leading the family often falls on their wives. Most of the women I talk to don't want this job but end up taking it by default. Nice guys tend to be monogamous to their mothers. Becoming and remaining monogamous to their mothers is a common pattern for nice guys. This unconscious bond is a result of a normal childhood developmental phenomenon gone amok. Let me explain. All little boys naturally fall in love with their mother and desire to have her all to themselves. Healthy mothers and fathers help their sons successfully move through this normal developmental stage. As they do, the young boy individuates from his mother, bonds with men, and becomes available for an intimate relationship with another woman in adulthood. Each parent plays a significant role in facilitating this healthy transition. First, the mother must know how to give enough to meet the child's needs without creating dependency. She must also know how to get her own needs met so she is not tempted to use her son to fill the void. Second, the father must be present and have a healthy bond with his son. This connection helps the little boy move from the cozy lap of his mother to the challenging world of men. As stated above, most nice guys do not report having had a close relationship with their father in childhood. As a result, many nice guys were forced into an unhealthy bond with their mother. This bond might have formed if they had to please an angry, critical, or controlling mother. 
More often than not, the bond was the result of being forced to take care of a needy, dependent, or smothering mother. Without a supportive father, these boys had to negotiate an impossible situation on their own. Both childhood situations, trying to please an angry or controlling mother, or becoming mother's little partner, created a dynamic in which nice guys unconsciously became monogamous to their mothers and did not individuate in a healthy way. When a nice guy has been conditioned to be monogamous to his mother in childhood, his adult partner will know at some level that he's not really available. The partner may not consciously connect this to his bond with his mother, but she knows something is missing. Anita, a woman in her late 50s, was married to a man who was monogamous to his mother. I met Anita when she called and made an appointment for individual counseling. She believed her husband was having an affair, and she wanted some advice. As we began our session, she sat down on the couch and smiled nervously. I feel so foolish coming here, but I just don't know who to talk to. I feel crazy because I think my husband is having an affair with his secretary. He denies it, but I know something is going on. There's just too much evidence. Anita's smile disappeared and was replaced with a look of grief. She took a tissue and dabbed the corner of her eye. Dutton, that's my husband, has been through so much lately. He's under a lot of pressure at work, things have been tight financially, and his mother died last year. He was really close to her, and I think it was really hard on him. Anita told of her suspicions of her husband's infidelity, but then came back to the subject of his mother again. If I didn't know better... I'd say his infatuation with his secretary began right after his mother died. It's like he needed something to fill a hole in his life. I always liked his mother. She was a nice lady. But I always had the feeling that Dutton was more connected to her than he was to me. Is that crazy? She asked quizzically. To be jealous of your mother-in-law? I encouraged Anita to tell me more about Dutton's family. Other than his father, she continued... He believes his family is great. That's because of his mother, of course. She was a real saint. His father was extremely harsh with the kids. Their mom was the one they turned to for nurturing. She was really good at listening and being there for them. Anita seemed relieved to be able to talk about something besides her suspicions of her husband. Before she died, Dutton paid for them to get carpet in their house and bought them two nice reclining chairs because he knew his father never would. He used to drive her places because he knew his father wouldn't. He treated his mother real special, I think to make up for what she had to go through living with his dad. One time I was angry at him, and I accused him of treating his mother better than he treated me. He blew up. Anita made an explosion gesture with her arms. He told me to never say that again. He didn't talk to me for two weeks after that. I learned not to bring up that subject. Anita paused for a moment. Do you think that there could be any connection between his mom dying and him having an affair? They loved each other so much. Maybe his secretary fills that void. Does that sound crazy to you? Nice guys tend to seek the approval of women. Due to their family and social conditioning, nice guys tend to seek the approval of women even as they are trying to become what they believe women want them to be and doing what they believe women want them to do, nice guys tend to experience tremendous frustration in gaining the approval they so intensely desire.
This frustration is due to the reality that in general, women view men who try to please them as weak and hold these men in contempt. Most women do not want a man who tries to please them. They want a man who knows how to please himself. Women consistently share with me that they don't want a passive, pleasing wimp. They want a man, someone with his balls still intact. Getting your testicles back. Avoiding relationships with men and seeking the approval of women prevents nice guys from getting what they really want in love and life. In order to reverse the effects of the nice guy syndrome, nice guys have to reclaim their masculinity. The process involves believing that it really is a good thing to be a man and embracing all of their masculine traits. Reclaiming one's masculinity involves connecting with other men, getting strong, finding healthy male role models, re-examining one's relationship with one's father. Connecting with men helps nice guys reclaim their masculinity. Connecting with men is essential for reclaiming masculinity. Building relationships with men requires a conscious effort. This process begins with a commitment to develop male friendships. In order to do this, Recovering nice guys must be willing to make the time, take risks, and be vulnerable. For most nice guys, time seems to be a big factor that keeps them disconnected from men. It takes time to talk with a neighbor, call up a friend, or go to a ball game. Since many nice guys are enmeshed with their wives, families, or work, this means taking time away from these things. Connecting with men involves doing guy things with guys. There is no right way to do this, but it can include joining a team, going to sporting events, joining a prayer or discussion group, having a poker night, doing volunteer work, going fishing, going for a run, or just hanging out. Alan is an example of what can happen when a recovering nice guy makes the decision to connect with men. Alan had a difficult time doing things for himself, especially with other men. When he made a conscious effort to begin addressing this issue, he had to first take a look at what kept him disconnected from men and what he could do to start changing the pattern. One of the first things Alan did was join a men's therapy group. Even then, it took more than a year before he began doing things with the men outside of the group. As he did, these men were able to give him feedback about his defense mechanisms that kept him isolated. These men also supported him in changing the ways he related to his wife. Alan also joined a health club, where he started playing volleyball and racquetball with other men. Later, he took the lead in starting up a softball team. At first, it was difficult to take time out just for himself, especially when it meant being away from his family. It took a few years, but Alan now has a couple of close male friends, as well as several other guys he sees on a regular basis. He even takes a yearly road trip with friends across the country for a weekend of golf. He looks at these trips with the guys as one of the highlights of his year. Both Alan and his wife Marie believe Alan's conscious decision to connect with men saved their marriage. Alan had made his wife his emotional center. 
His life revolved around trying to please her and make her happy. Due to his ineffective covert contracts, Alan never believed Marie gave as much to him as he gave to her. As a result, he was often resentful and passive-aggressive. When Alan began to get his emotional and social needs met with men, it took a lot of pressure off his wife. As Alan reclaimed his masculine energy, he also began to look more attractive to Marie. Even though it was initially difficult to tell her that he was going to spend time with his friends, she respected him when he did. This newfound respect rekindled the feelings she first felt toward Alan early in their relationship. As Alan found out, there are numerous benefits from developing male relationships. Perhaps one of the most significant benefits for nice guys is that it improves their relationships with women. I consistently tell nice guys, the best thing you can do for your relationship with your girlfriend or wife is to have male friends. As they get many of their emotional needs met with men, recovering nice guys become less dependent, needy, manipulative, and resentful in their relationships with women. Developing male relationships makes recovering nice guys less susceptible to seeking women's approval or allowing themselves to be defined by the opposite sex. If the nice guy's girlfriend or wife is angry at him or thinks he is a jerk, he can take comfort in knowing his buddies think he is okay. He is therefore less likely to resort to peacekeeping or fixing to try and keep his partner happy. Friendships with men have the potential for tremendous depth and intimacy because there is no sexual agenda. A nice guy will frequently avoid doing anything that might upset his partner and cause her to not want to have sex with him. With men, recovering nice guys don't feel like they have to please, placate, lie, caretake, or sacrifice like they believe they have to do with women. Not having a sexual agenda removes the fear and dysfunctional dances so common for nice guys in their relationships with the opposite sex. Breaking the Monogamous Bond to Mom Developing male relationships helps undo a nice guy's monogamous bond with his mother. Little boys get pulled into unhealthy relationships with their mothers only when their fathers allow it. The solution to reversing this dynamic is creating healthy relationships with men. When my daughter Jamie was 18, she had a boyfriend who had been conditioned to be monogamous to his mother. The boy's father frequently traveled for his job, was emotionally unavailable, rigid, and demanding. The boy's mother smothered her son and made him her emotional partner. On several occasions, Jamie felt as if she were competing with her boyfriend's mother for his attention and affection. Unfortunately, since the mother had first dibs on him, she usually won. It felt strange to Jamie to be jealous of and in competition with her boyfriend's mother. Nevertheless, she passed the situation off as just a case of her boyfriend and his mother having a very close relationship. One Friday night, Jamie and I went out for dinner. While we ate, she shared her frustration of having to compete with her boyfriend's mother, especially now that he had joined the Marines and was away at boot camp. I empathized with my daughter and shared the facts of life with her. Your boyfriend is a classic nice guy, I told her. He has been conditioned to be monogamous to his mother. Unfortunately, that means that he will never really be able to bond completely with you. Something will always get in the way. You may be tempted to focus on that thing as if it is the problem, 
But the real problem is his relationship with his mother. Jamie wasn't thrilled with what I told her, but for an 18-year-old, she was pretty intuitive and knew what I was saying was true. She even shared a few examples of the ways she had already seen this happen. Is there any hope? Jamie asked. Can he ever break free from his mother and become available for me? Yes, I said. There is one hope. He has to learn to connect with men in ways that he couldn't with his father. I told her, I think it is a good thing that he is in the Marines and connecting with men. You can support that too. If you two continue dating or even marry, encourage his relationships with men. They are the one hope you have of him breaking his monogamous bond with his mother. A month or so later, Jamie flew down to San Diego with her boyfriend's parents to attend his graduation from boot camp. As usual, his mother acted possessive and territorial. Amazingly, Jamie noticed a difference in her boyfriend. On several occasions, he set boundaries with his mother and refused to let her hook an emotional hose up to him. Jamie could tell that this was primarily the result of her boyfriend having bonded with several guys in boot camp and from embracing his own masculinity. Breaking Free Activity Number 25 List three men whom you would like to get to know better. Next to each man's name, list a possible activity you could do together. Next to this, write down a date and make a commitment to contact him by this day. Getting strong helps nice guys reclaim their masculinity. Masculinity denotes strength and power. Because of their conditioning, nice guys tend to fear these traits. As a result, they often become emotionally and physically soft. Some even take pride in this softness. I've met many nice guys who work out or practice martial arts, but who are still afraid of their strength. Embracing one's masculinity means embracing one's body, power, and spaciousness. In order to do this, recovering nice guys have to stop putting junk into their bodies and train them to respond to the physical demands of being male. This involves eating healthy foods, eliminating drugs and alcohol, working out, drinking lots of water, playing, relaxing, and getting enough rest. Whether the nice guy stays fit by running, swimming, weight training, martial arts, playing basketball, volleyball, or tennis, this physical strength translates into self-confidence and power in every other aspect of his life. Travis, an attorney in his early 50s, is a good example. Travis came to see me to deal with his marital difficulties. During the first session of counseling, two things became immediately evident. First, Travis was a nice guy. And second, he had a drug and alcohol problem. I told him I would work with him only if he got a drug and alcohol assessment, quit drinking, and started attending Alcoholics Anonymous. Travis complied with all of my boundaries and asked if he could join one of the No More Mr. Nice Guy groups. Over the next several months, Travis's relationship with his wife was up and down like a yo-yo. In addition to marital problems, it also became apparent that Travis had a number of other lifestyle problems. His diet consisted primarily of fast food. He was a chain smoker and he drank several cups of coffee a day.
He worked long hours and got absolutely no exercise. Over the next several months, Travis began to address these issues one at a time. He started taking time away from work to attend AA meetings and spend time with other recovering men. He decided to have a surgery he had been putting off for years. Since he wouldn't be able to smoke for a few days, he decided it was a good time to quit for good. After his surgery, he began going for walks during his lunch hour. He started drinking more water and cut back on his coffee and soft drink consumption. He even took a week off from work and went fishing with some friends in Alaska. About 10 months after joining the Nice Guy group, he shared that he was filing for divorce. With his lifestyle changes and the support of the group, he had come to realize that his combative relationship with his wife was his last bad habit that needed to go. While relaying his decision to the group, he revealed that his wife blamed the group for killing their marriage. Travis smiled and then wiped a tear from the corner of his eye. Thanks to this group, I feel strong. I never could have made these changes without your help. This group didn't kill my marriage. It saved my life. Breaking Free Activity Number 26 Identify three ways in which you neglect your body. Write down three ways in which you can start taking better care of yourself. Seeking out healthy role models helps nice guys reclaim their masculinity. I encourage recovering nice guys to visualize what they think a healthy male would look like and think of healthy masculine traits they would like to develop. With that picture in mind, they can go out and look for men who have these kinds of qualities. These men may be in their church, their company, their softball team, even characters on TV or the movies. By observing how these men live their lives and interact with the world, the nice guy can begin assimilating a healthier model of manhood. Like many recovering nice guys, I have done this work by committee. I developed a friendship with one man who was good at doing guy things. I formed a relationship with another guy who was a hard worker. I created a relationship with a man who was comfortable revealing himself and sharing his feelings. I made another friend who was good at taking risks and challenging himself. Each of these men, in their own way, helped me see what it looks like to be male and have been role models for reclaiming my own masculinity. Breaking Free Activity Number 27 Visualize what you think a healthy male would look like. What personality traits would he possess? Write these down. Do you know anyone who has a number of these traits? How could you use this person as a healthy role model? Re-examining their relationship with their father helps nice guys reclaim their masculinity. As I've mentioned before, most nice guys do not report having had a close relationship with their father in childhood. Their fathers were either passive, unavailable, absent, or defined in some negative way. Reclaiming their masculinity requires that nice guys examine their relationships with their fathers and take a look at them through adult eyes. Matthew, a computer programmer in his mid-40s, is a good example of this process. 
On one occasion, in a No More Mr. Nice Guy group, Matthew stated that he had no intention of attending his father's funeral when he should die. Months later, after exploring his relationship with his father in the group, he decided to call and confront his dad when he didn't get invited to a family function. Matt's mother had always portrayed his dad as a villain while representing herself as a victim. While talking with his father, Matthew came to the realization that even though his dad had problems, he wasn't bad like his mother made him out to be. From this encounter, Matthew also realized that he had created a similar scenario with his wife, identifying her as the villain and himself as the victim. Not only did that phone call to his father begin to change his relationship with his dad, but also with his wife. For nice guys, re-examining their relationship with their fathers means seeing their dads through their own eyes as they really are. It means taking them out of the gutter or off the pedestal. This may require that the nice guy hold them accountable by expressing their feelings to them, including rage and anger. This is essential, even if these men are dead. Sometimes this takes place in their father's presence, sometimes not. It's not so important that the father is available to do this work. What is essential is that recovering nice guys embrace the male heritage they and their fathers share. The goal is to find a way to view fathers more accurately. Recovering nice guys can begin to accept these men for who they were and are, wounded human beings. This shift is essential if nice guys are going to view themselves more accurately, accept themselves for who they are, and reclaim their masculinity. Breaking Free Activity Number 28 Embracing masculinity involves coming to see Dad more accurately. To facilitate this process, create a list. On the left side, list a number of your father's characteristics. Write the opposite characteristic on the right side. Indicate where on the spectrum between the two that you see yourself. When recovering nice guys do this exercise, they are often surprised at what they discover about their fathers and themselves. They often see how they have made their fathers into a caricature, a distortion of who they really are. They may realize that if the man they have become is based on a reaction to how they saw their fathers, they too have become caricatures. Remember, the opposite of crazy is still crazy. They realize that if their lives are a reaction to Dad, then Dad is still in control. They discover that they can be different from Dad without being the opposite. They often come to realize that they have more traits in common with their fathers than they had previously realized or wanted to accept. Passing the Benefits of Masculinity Onto the Next Generation Part 1. Snakes and snails. As I work to raise my sons, I realize that they are growing up in a world very much like the one that created my generation of nice guys. Boys are disconnected from men and are dependent on gaining the approval of women. This was brought home to me a couple of years back when our family moved to a new home the summer before my son entered the fourth grade. When I attended his PTA open house, I was jolted with a dose of reality. 
In kindergarten through fifth grade, there was only one male classroom teacher in the whole school. That's about a 20 to 1 ratio. As the teachers were introduced a grade at a time and then stood together on the gym floor, I received a visual picture of the environment in which little boys spend the most impressionable years of their lives. As a recovering nice guy, I have a unique chance to pass on a new model of masculinity, not only to my sons and daughter, but to a whole generation of boys and girls. The more time I spend working with nice guys, the more I realize that this process represents a powerful tool for giving the next generation a saner model of what it means to be men and women. Unfortunately, our culture provides few rituals in which adult males help boys leave the comfort of a nursery ruled by women, home, preschool, school, and enter the world of adult manhood. Robert Bly discusses the importance of these rituals in his book, Iron John. In primitive societies, Bly writes, the boys are pretty much raised by the women until early adolescence. When it is time for the boys to leave the sphere of female influence and move into the men's world, the men of the tribe stage a raid. They put on their war paint, enter the village, and steal the boys away. The women, on cue, weep, protest, and do their best to hang on to the boys. After the men have taken the boys outside the village for their period of initiation, the women get together and ask, How did I do? Was I believable? In these cultures, the men and women work together to facilitate this process of transition and initiation. These days, boys try to make this transition from a world ruled by women, but they can't do it on their own. I have a theory that the phase that adolescent boys pass through where they dress sloppily, look scraggly, act aggressively, hole up in their rooms, slouch, play loud music, swear and spit a lot, are all unconsciously aimed at making themselves so repulsive that even their mothers can't stand them. This helps them break the symbiotic bonds with their moms. Nevertheless, these young men still need help from adult males in pulling away from their mothers without feeling guilt and shame and without overly destructive behaviors. I believe recovering nice guys can help boys find a saner model of what it means to be male in our culture. This is because there are certain things that boys can only learn from men. As nice guys embrace their masculinity, they can teach their sons what it means to be male. This includes how to handle their aggression, how to handle their libido, how to relate to women, how to bond with a man, and, perhaps most importantly, how to embrace their own masculinity. Men teach these lessons both by example and by interaction with young boys. As a recovering nice guy, I also benefit from being with my adolescent sons and their friends. When I'm around my boys, I get to see unbridled maleness in action. Not only do I get to teach my sons how to handle their testosterone-related behaviors, such as aggression and sexuality, they also show me how to embrace mine. This reciprocal process requires time and interaction. Fathers need to take their sons hunting and fishing, work on cars with them, take them to work, coach their teams, take them to ball games, work out with them, 
take them on business trips, and let them tag along with them when they go out with the guys. All of these activities help boys move successfully into the male world. This process is not just limited to a man's biological sons. Nice guys can get involved with young relatives, scouts, sports teams, school activities, or big brothers. Trey, a single man in his late 30s, illustrates the power of this male influence. One night in his men's group, Trey talked about his nephew who was being raised by Trey's sister, a single mother. Trey had strong feelings about what was happening to his nephew because the boy was going through some of the same rebellion and acting out with alcohol that Trey had experienced at the same age. The group encouraged Trey to reach out to his nephew and be a positive male influence. The next week in group, Trey was beaming. He told how he'd taken his nephew to the hardware store and how the two of them had put together a workbench. His nephew was thrilled with the male contact. Trey came away with the feeling that he had done something positive to help change the direction of a struggling young boy. Breaking Free Activity Number 29 How can you provide a healthy male support system for the boys and young men you know? List three boys along with an activity you can participate in with them. Passing the Benefits on Part 2 Sugar and Spice Little girls can benefit from this reclaimed masculine energy as well. The men in one of my No More Mr. Nice Guy groups showed me the benefits of male energy on a young girl in a powerful way. One of the members, Lamar, had a 12-year-old daughter with bone cancer. She had to have a leg removed and undergo chemotherapy and radiation. As a result, she had spent countless days and nights in a hospital bed. One Friday evening, while Lamar was sitting at the hospital at his daughter's bedside, the members of his men's group showed up unexpectedly to take him out to dinner. In addition to providing masculine support for Lamar during a difficult time, the men also produced an unexpected dividend. Energized by their presence, Lamar's daughter sat up and received hugs from each guy. That night, she needed less medication and slept better than she had in weeks. The next day, all she could talk about was her guys who had come to visit her the night before. Recovering nice guys can show their daughters what a real man looks like. Girls benefit by seeing their fathers set boundaries, ask for what they want in clear and direct ways, work hard, create, produce, have male friends, and make their own needs a priority. As with little boys, girls can learn what it means to be male both by watching their fathers and by interacting with them. This modeling will have a positive influence on their choice of future partners. A No-Lose Situation As nice guys reclaim their masculine energy, everyone wins. Not only does the recovering nice guy get to experience deeper bonds with men, but his relationships with women grow too. Perhaps most significantly, a whole new generation of boys and girls reap the benefits of seeing what a healthy male really looks like. Chapter 7 Get the Love You Want Success Strategies for Intimate Relationships I'm a victim of her dysfunction. Carl, 
a successful businessman in his mid-thirties, began his first counseling session with the preceding analysis of his relationship with his wife, Danita. Though over six foot two and professionally dressed in a dark suit and tie, Carl looked like a little boy sitting on the sofa in my office. Carl's frustration and helplessness regarding his most intimate relationship was unmistakable. As Carl continued to talk about his marriage, it became apparent that he was intimidated by his wife, Danita. He claimed she was angry all the time. When talking about her, he used adjectives like relentless and steamroller. Because of his fear of her anger, he lied to her and avoided interacting with her. In many ways, Carl revealed, Danita is just like my mother. There was just no pleasing mom. I learned to just avoid her and tune her out when she was bitching. I got really good at lying and hiding what I didn't want her to know about. I guess I'm still pretty good at that today. As Carl brought the discussion back to the present, he revealed, Every other area of my life is great. If it wasn't for Danita, my life would be perfect. I just don't think she knows how to be happy. Intimate Strangers In general, nice guys end up in my office for one of two reasons. Sometimes some hidden behavior, an affair, surfing for pornography on the Internet, smoking pot, has blown up in their face and created a crisis with their wife or girlfriend. More often, their call to a therapist is motivated by some problem or dissatisfaction in their most intimate relationship. Their partner doesn't want to have sex as often as they do. She is depressed, angry, unavailable, or unfaithful, or all of the above. These men usually believe there's a simple answer to their problem. Some of them are sure everything will be okay if they can just stop doing that one thing that keeps making their partner so angry. The rest of them are convinced that if they can get their partner to change, then life will be great. A note. The majority of the men with whom I work are heterosexual. Though I have observed similar relationship issues with gay men, many of the examples I use in this chapter reflect male-female relationships. More often than not, I will use the pronoun she or her when referring to the nice guy's partner. Intimate relationships are often an area of great frustration and bewilderment for nice guys. Most nice guys profess a great desire for intimacy and happiness with their significant other. Nevertheless, intimacy represents an enigmatic riddle for the majority of these men. Here's what I've concluded after several years of observing countless nice guys. Even though nice guys often profess a deep desire to be intimately connected with another individual, their internalized toxic shame and childhood survival mechanisms make such connections difficult and problematic. Why Nice Guys Struggle to Get the Love They Want there are a number of reasons why nice guys have difficulty getting the love they want. These include their toxic shame, the dysfunctional relationships they co-create, their patterns of enmeshment and avoidance, the familiar childhood relationship dynamics they recreate, 
their unconscious need to remain monogamous to their mother. They are bad enders. Toxic shame prevents nice guys from getting the love they want. Intimacy implies vulnerability. I define intimacy as knowing the self, being known by another, and knowing another. Intimacy requires two people who are willing to courageously look inward and make themselves totally visible to another. Internalized toxic shame makes this kind of exposure feel life-threatening for nice guys. Intimacy, by its nature, would require the nice guy to look into the abyss of his most inner self and allow others to peer into these same places. It would require the nice guy to let someone get close enough to see all the nooks and crannies of his soul. This terrifies nice guys, because being known means being found out. All nice guys have worked their entire lives to become what they believe others want them to be, while trying to hide their perceived flaws. The demands of intimacy represent everything nice guys fear most. Co-creating dysfunctional relationships prevents nice guys from getting the love they want. The nice guy's ongoing attempt to hide his perceived badness makes intimacy a challenge. The moment a nice guy enters a relationship, he begins a balancing act. In relationships, a life and death struggle is played out to balance their fear of vulnerability with their fear of isolation. Vulnerability means someone may get too close to them and see how bad they are. Nice guys are convinced that when others make this discovery, these people will hurt them, shame them, or leave them. The alternative doesn't seem any better. Isolating themselves from others recreates the abandonment experiences that were so terrifying in childhood. In order to balance his fear of vulnerability and fear of abandonment, a nice guy needs help. He finds it in people who are equally wounded and also have difficulty with intimacy. Together, they co-create relationships that simultaneously frustrate all parties while protecting them from their fear of being found out. Even though it may look like many of the problems the nice guys experience in relationships are caused by the baggage their partner brings with them, this is not the case. It is the relationship the nice guy and his partner co-create that is the problem. It is true that nice guys often pick partners who appear to be projects. And indeed, they do at times pick some pretty messed up people. The fact that these partners may have challenges, they are single moms, they have financial problems, they are angry, addictive, depressed, overweight, non-sexual, or unable to be faithful, is precisely the reason nice guys invite these people into their lives. As long as attention is focused on the flaws of the partner, it is diverted away from the internalized toxic shame of the nice guy. This balancing act ensures that the nice guy's closest relationship will most likely be his least intimate. Patterns of enmeshment and avoidance prevent nice guys from getting the love they want. This intimacy balancing act gets played out in two distinct ways for nice guys. 
The first is through becoming overly involved in an intimate relationship at the expense of oneself and other outside interests. The second is through being emotionally unavailable to a primary partner while playing the nice guy role outside of the relationship. I call the first type of nice guy an enmesher, and the second type an avoider. The enmeshing nice guy makes his partner his emotional center. His world revolves around her. She is more important than his work, his buddies, his hobbies. He will do whatever it takes to make her happy. He will give her gifts, try to fix her problems, and arrange his schedule to be with her. He will gladly sacrifice his wants and needs to win her love. He will even tolerate her bad moods, rage attacks, addictions, and emotional or sexual unavailability, all because he loves her so much. I sometimes refer to enmeshing nice guys as table dogs. They are like little dogs who stand beneath the table just in case a scrap happens to fall their way. Enmeshing nice guys do this same hovering routine around their partner just in case she happens to drop him a scrap of sexual interest, a scrap of her time, a scrap of a good mood, or a scrap of her attention. Even though they are settling for the leftovers that fall from the table, enmeshing nice guys think they are getting something really good. On the surface, it may appear that the enmeshing nice guy desires and is available for an intimate relationship, but this is an illusion. The nice guy's pursuing and enmeshing behavior is an attempt to hook up an emotional hose to his partner. This hose is used to suck the life out of her and fill an empty place inside of him. The nice guy's partner unconsciously picks up on this agenda and works like hell to make sure the nice guy can't get close enough to hook up the hose. Consequently, the nice guy's partner is often seen as the one preventing the closeness the nice guy desires. The avoider can be a little tougher to get a handle on. The avoiding nice guy seems to put his job, hobby, parents, and everything else before his primary relationship. He may not seem like a nice guy to his partner at all because he is often nice to everyone else but her. He may volunteer to work on other people's cars. He may spend weekends fixing his mother's roof. He may work two or three jobs. He may coach his children's sports teams. Even though he may not follow his partner around and cater to her every whim, he still operates from a covert contract that since he is a nice guy, his partner should be available to him, even if he isn't available to her. Both patterns, enmeshing and avoiding, inhibit any real kind of intimacy from occurring. They may help the nice guy feel safe, but they won't help him feel loved. Breaking Free Activity number 30 Ask yourself, are you an enmesher? or an avoider in your present relationship. How would your partner see you? Does the pattern ever change? What roles have you played in past relationships? Recreating familiar childhood relationship patterns prevents nice guys from getting the love they want. It is human nature to be attracted to what is familiar. Because of this reality, 
Nice guys create adult relationships that mirror the dynamics of their dysfunctional childhood relationships. For example, if listening to his mother's problems as a child gave a nice guy a sense of connection, he may grow up believing such behavior equals intimacy. In order to feel valuable and connected in his adult relationships, he will have to pick a partner who has her fair share of problems. If he was trained to caretake and fix needy or dependent family members, the nice guy may find a way to do the same in his adult relationships. If he believes he can only get his own needs met after he had met the needs of other more important people, the nice guy may sacrifice himself for the sake of his partner. If he was abandoned in childhood, he may choose partners who are unavailable or unfaithful. If he grew up with an angry, demeaning, or controlling parent, he may choose a partner with similar traits. Occasionally, the person the nice guy chooses to help him recreate his childhood relationship patterns isn't the way he unconsciously needs her to be when the relationship begins. If this is the case, he will often help her become what he needs. He may project upon her one or more traits of his parents. He may act as if she is a certain way, even when she isn't. His unconscious, dysfunctional needs may literally force his partner to respond in an equally dysfunctional way. For example, as a child, I never knew what kind of mood my father would be in when I came into the house. More often than not, it wasn't good. I learned to come home prepared for the worst. I later recreated the same pattern in my marriage. I projected my father's unpredictable moods onto my wife and would frequently arrive home prepared for her to be angry. Even if she was in a good mood, my defensiveness often triggered some kind of confrontation between us. Thus, Elizabeth came to look like my angry father, and I perpetuated a familiar, though dysfunctional, relationship dynamic. Breaking Free Activity Number 31 We tend to be attracted to people who have some of the worst traits of both of our parents. Instead of blaming your partner for your unconscious choice, identify the ways in which she helps you recreate familiar relationship patterns from your childhood. Share this with your partner. The unconscious need to remain monogamous to mom prevents nice guys from getting the love they want. The tendency of nice guys to be monogamous to their mothers seriously inhibits having a genuinely intimate relationship with a partner in adulthood. Nice guys are creative in finding ways to maintain this childhood bond. What all of these behaviors have in common is that they all effectively ensure that the nice guy will not be able to bond in any significant way with any woman except his mother. Breaking Free Activity Number 32 The following are a few of the ways nice guys unconsciously maintain a monogamous bond to their mothers. Look over the list. Note any of the behavior patterns that may serve to keep you monogamous to your mother. Share this information with a safe person. Over-involvement with work or hobbies. Creating relationships with people who need fixing.
addictions to drugs or alcohol, sexual addictions to pornography, masturbation, fantasy, chat lines, or hookers, affairs, sexual dysfunction, lack of desire, inability to get or maintain an erection, or premature ejaculation. Forming relationships with women who are angry, sick, depressive, compulsive, addicted, unfaithful, or otherwise unavailable. Avoiding intercourse or taking vows of celibacy. Being bad enders prevents nice guys from getting the love they want. Finally, nice guys have difficulty getting the love they want because they spend too much time. Trying to make bad relationships work. Basically, nice guys suffer from the age-old problem of looking for love in all the wrong places. If a nice guy spends all of his time stuck in a bad relationship, it pretty much guarantees he won't find one that might work better. When healthy individuals recognize that they have created a relationship that is not a good fit. Or that a partner they have chosen lacks the basic qualities they desire, they move on. Not nice guys. Due to their conditioning, nice guys just keep trying harder to get a non-workable situation to work, or get someone to be something they are not. This tendency frustrates everybody involved. Even when nice guys do try to end a relationship, they are not very good at it. They frequently do it too late and in indirect, blaming or deceitful ways. They typically have to do it several times before it sticks. I often joke that, on average, it takes nice guys about nine attempts to end a relationship. Unfortunately, this isn't far from the truth. Strategies for building successful relationships. There are no perfect relationships. There are no perfect partners. Relationships, by their very nature, are chaotic, eventful, and challenging. The second part of this chapter is not a plan for finding a perfect partner, or creating the perfect relationship. It is simply a strategy for doing what works. By adapting the points below and changing the way in which they live their lives, recovering nice guys will change the way they have relationships. Nice guys can approve of themselves, put themselves first, reveal themselves to safe people, eliminate covert contracts, take responsibility for their own needs, surrender, dwell in reality. Express their feelings, develop integrity, set boundaries, embrace their masculinity. Previous chapters have all included illustrations of what can happen to relationships when nice guys begin to make these life changes. Let's examine a little more closely how applying a couple of these life strategies can help recovering nice guys get the love they want. A warning: If you are in a relationship, the program of recovery from the nice guy syndrome presented in this book 
will seriously affect you and your partner. One of two things will happen. One, your present relationship will begin to grow and evolve in exciting and unpredictable ways. Two, your present relationship will be sent to a long overdue grave. Learning to approve of themselves helps nice guys get the love they want. The essence of recovery from the nice guy syndrome is the conscious decision to live one's life just as one desires. I frequently encourage recovering nice guys to be just who they are, without reservation. I support them in deciding what is right for them, and being that with all of their energy for the whole world to see. The people who like them, just as they are, will hang around. The people who don't, won't. This is the only way to have a healthy relationship. No one really wants to believe that they have to be false or hide who they really are to get someone to love them or stay with them. Yet, this is a common dynamic in the intimate relationships nice guys create. George is a good example of what can happen when a recovering nice guy decides to start pleasing himself and stop pleasing his partner. Throughout his relationship with his wife Susan, George's primary goal was to make her happy. Over a period of five years, George gave up hunting and fishing, two of his passions, quit hanging out with his friends, turned the control of his finances over to Susan, and supported her in quitting her job because she was unhappy at work. These changes occurred gradually. All were an attempt on George's part to please Susan. Nevertheless, Susan was rarely happy. By the time George joined a No More Mr. Nice Guy group, he felt helpless and resentful and was ready to leave his wife. George saw Susan as the cause of the frustration he was feeling. George spent the first few weeks in our group complaining about his wife. Eventually, the group members began to confront George on his victim role and challenged him to do something different instead of blaming Susan. It took a few more months, but George began to change. The most significant change was a conscious decision to quit trying to make Susan happy. He realized that his attempts to please her weren't working and were causing him to feel resentful. George began setting aside one weekend a month to go hunting or fishing. When Susan tried several different methods to manipulate him or guilt him out of his decision, he held fast. Next, instead of handing his paycheck over to Susan to control, he began giving himself an allowance to spend how he wanted. This, too, drew resistance from his wife. Perhaps the most frightening step was when George set up a budget and told Susan that if she wanted more control over the income, she would have to go back to working full-time. Ironically, two things began to happen. George felt less like a victim and actually started having more positive feelings toward Susan.
Second, Susan began taking charge of her own life and became less dependent on George. After about a year in the group, George shared how much more content he was and how much his marriage had improved. He gave credit to the group members who supported him in finding the courage to start pleasing himself and stop trying to make Susan happy. Breaking Free Activity Number 33 List some of the ways you try to please your partner. What changes would you make if you did not have to worry about making her happy? Setting boundaries helps nice guys get the love they want. The subject of boundaries was presented in Chapter 5. Nowhere is the issue of boundary setting more important for nice guys than in their most intimate relationships. By setting healthy boundaries with their partners, nice guys create situations in which both they and their partner can feel safe to be vulnerable and experience true intimacy. I show nice guys, often with their partners watching, how to step up to their line and set boundaries. On more than one occasion, I've had the partner of a nice guy applaud during the demonstration. The nice guy will turn, slack-jawed, and say, You mean you want me to stand up to you, dear? Of course I do, she will respond. I don't want to be married to someone I can walk all over. Then I warn him. Your wife is telling you the truth. She doesn't feel safe knowing she can push you around. She wants to know that you will stand up to her. That is how she will feel secure in the relationship. But here's the catch. She has to test to see if she can trust you. The first time you set a boundary with her, she may react intensely. She will push against it. She will tell you that you are wrong for setting that boundary. She will do her best to find out if your boundary is for real. When a recovering nice guy sets boundaries with his partner, it makes her feel secure. In general, when women feel secure, they feel loved. She will also come to know that if her partner will stand up to her, he is also likely to stand up for her. Setting boundaries also creates respect. When a nice guy fails to set boundaries, it communicates to his partner that he doesn't really honor himself. So why should she? To help nice guys decide if they need to set a boundary with a particular behavior, I have them apply the second date rule. Using the second date rule, nice guys ask themselves, if this behavior had occurred on the second date, would there have been a third? This question helps them see if they have been putting up with something that they shouldn't. When trying to decide how to deal with a behavior they have deemed unacceptable, I encourage nice guys to apply the healthy male rule. Following this rule of thumb, they simply ask themselves, how would a healthy male handle this situation? For some reason, just asking this question connects them with their intuitive wisdom and helps them access the power they need to respond appropriately.
Once the nice guy knows he can set a boundary anytime he needs to, he can let people move toward him, get close, have feelings, be sexual, and so on. He can let these things happen because he is confident that at any point, if he begins to feel uncomfortable, he can say stop, no, or slow down, or he can remove himself. He can do whatever he 